Today's scripture reading comes to us from Micah, chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the tree. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be in their peace. When the Assyrians comes into our land, and treads into our palaces, then we will rise against him, seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, let's now bow our heads and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask that you would speak to us, for we, your people, are listening. And yet, Father, as we attempt to do so, we are aware of the static, the background that is distracting and even reminding us of the things that discourage. And so, Jesus, we ask that by your Spirit, who dwells within, would help to cast away the things inside of us without of us so that we can be free so that we can be attentive for all the things that you want to say to us speak lord for we your servants are listening and we ask therefore god that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it for we ask in jesus name amen and amen uh, during this time of year no doubt a question that will be asked of you by your loved ones is probably this hey what do you want for Christmas? Babe, sweetie, honey, son, daughter, what do you want for Christmas? And if you're not asked, nevertheless, I'm sure you're going to answer it to those people. But I think a more appropriate question to ask instead of that one is perhaps this. What is your greatest fear? What is your greatest fear? Now, I know some, if not maybe all, disagree and say, PJ, that is not the appropriate question to ask this time of year. Maybe it was two months ago on October 31st, but no, we shouldn't ask such questions, not during this Advent season, not during the holiday season. Well, I'm sorry, I beg to differ. And you know who would agree in my differing of you? Chapman University. Because at this time, at the end of every year, they do a massive survey across the country asking Americans what our greatest fear is. And do you know what is the number one fear in America and has been so for three consecutive years? Do you know what it is? Corrupt government officials. Before the fear of global warming, the fear of, before the fear of a terrorist attack, before the, uh, the, before the fear of the death of a loved one, the fear of corrupt government officials has been number one since 2016, and I'm willing to bet with the way things have been that that specific fear is going to be able to defend its title for 2019 as well. I find that so interesting. So interesting because in our day and age, we tend to assume that politics is more like a cultural elective that is only of uh, interest of a select few in our society. But then again, maybe it's not. 
not too long ago, a few months back, uh, the magazine The Atlantic came out with an interesting article where they're projecting that the participatory rate of the 2020 election is going to be so massive that there hasn't been one like this in the past 100 years. They are forecasting with the upcoming elections in 2020 that more people are going to be voting and participating in the electoral process than has been in the past 100 years. Huh. Interesting. Maybe this politics is something that's more relevant for you, Christian, than what you have thought before. But of course, that raises the question. We can make the case, I guess, that politics and Christianity is relevant. But how do you go from there and say that it has relevancy for Christmas? What does politics have anything to do with Christmas at all? We're continuing our Advent sermon series entitled The Stories of Christmas Past. And in this series, we're taking a look at the old historical narratives of the Old Testament that are referenced in Matthew's account in his gospel of the Christmas story. And it's the hope of looking at these background Old Testament stories that we would have a better understanding of not only what Christmas is about, but what we are to be about in light of Christmas, to where not only do we understand the meaning of Christmas, but we understand the transformation Christmas should have upon us. And today we take a look at Micah chapter 5. And as we do, Micah is going to help us understand how the arrival of Jesus on Christmas Day is to undo a specific and unique problem that is put upon us by corrupt government leaders or their analogous equivalent, which I'll explain throughout the message. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, let's talk about the need for a healing king, the need for a healing king. Number two, the characteristics of a healing king. And finally, let's end it with the access to the healing king, the need, the characteristics, and finally access to the healing king. Let's jump right in first, the need for a healing king. Read again with me the first verses of our passage where Micah says this, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid upon us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Okay, here's what's going on. Micah is prophesying about a doomsday that's really right around the corner for the nation of Judah. And the reason why I know that what he's prophesying about has not yet happened is because he's continuing the thought that he started in the previous chapter where he's talking about the coming exile. You know, the exile, that moment in Judah's history where the nation of Babylon came and conquered them and ripped them away, the people of Judah from their homeland, scattering them across their empire, never to be heard of again, or at least so it seemed, right? That's the exile. And because that is the historical background of this passage, Old Testament scholars tell us that the judge of Israel that's referred to in verse 1 is none other than the very last king Judah would ever have, a man by the name of Zedekiah. Now, who in the world is Zedekiah other than what I just told you of being the last king of Judah? Well, for all intents and purposes, Zedekiah was a puppet king, a puppet king. He was what many are accusing our current president of being in his alleged relation to Russia. You see, Zedekiah became king through Babylonian interference. When the king of Babylon, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, first attacked Judah, he got rid of the reigning king at the time, a man by the name of Jehoiachin, and he replaced him with his uncle, a man by the name of Zedekiah. Now, the Bible is clear in terms of the what characteristics and qualifications a king of God's people should have. But because, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was not in any way informed 
in any way given any instruction about the Bible, you can imagine the kind of king Zedekiah was and the kind of rulership that he created under his kingship. And it wasn't the kind of kingship that God would have approved for his own people. In fact, consider what God says in his own words to Zedekiah and the culture he created as king. This is, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 16. This is God talking to Zedekiah. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all those still living here in Jerusalem, your relatives who are not exiled to Babylon. This is what the Lord of heaven army say. I will send war, famine, and disease upon them and make them like bad figs too rotten to eat. Yes, I will pursue them with war, famine, and disease. I will scatter them around the world in every nation where I send them. I will make them an object of damnation, horror, contempt, and mockery, for they refuse... To listen to me, though I have spoken to them repeatedly through the prophets I sent. Zedekiah was a corrupt government official. And guess what? He wasn't the only one. Throughout its history, the nation of Judah had how many kings? 20. And amongst those 20, 12 of them were wicked. That means they were compromised. They were counterfeit. They were corrupt. And a majority of these wicked kings culminated towards the end of the history of the nation of Judah's existence, which means there was a lot of war and conflict, conflict and wars that ultimately culminated with Babylon wiping them out, sending them into exile. Now, here's the question. What do you think living in that time, in that situation could do to a person? I mean, just imagine for a moment if you lived in the nation of Judah during this time. What do you think that kind of environment would do to a person like yourself. Hmm? Well, believe it or not, you don't really have to imagine it because all of you, most of you in here, are having an experience similar to what the Jews would have felt back then. Let me explain. Um, Most of you in here are Korean. And if you're not Korean, that's okay. We still love you because what I'm about to say still applies to you nevertheless. But because a majority of us are Korean, let me use that as a springboard. According to Korean cultural anthropologists, we Koreans struggle with this thing known as Han. I talked about it before, Han. Now, what in the world is Han? Well, consider this definition that I got from an article entitled The Psychology of Han. It starts as this Uh, with these words, quote, generally speaking, Han is the idea that some injustice has been done to oneself. The injustice could be inflicted on the Korean people by a foreign power, on employees by their employer, on citizens by their government, on a daughter-in-law by her mother-in-law, on a wife by her husband, on a poor person by his rich neighbor. Anything that is perpetuated on a person or group that is permanently imprinted as injustice or unfairness. To put it another way, Han is an anthropological concept that operates on so many levels of Korea, from the highest historical national level to the innermost psychic feelings of the person. Virtually all of Koreans, Korea's institutions and persons are under the powerful influence of Han. Virtually all of Koreans have a deep-seated sense of grief and grievances that they have been wronged by some very powerful agents of injustice, end quote. Han. This unnameable, inexplicable feeling that's the direct result of being humiliated, oppressed, and victimized by some external uh, agent. And it's interesting, uh, recent studies that I've looked up that are currently studying Han, many of them are arguing convincingly that the historical source of this issue amongst our people group originated in the 1900s during what? The Japanese occupation that happened close to over 100 years ago. 
Isn't that crazy? All of us Koreans in here are affected by something that happened 100 years ago in another part of the world. Something that's very comparable to how the Judeans were treated by the Babylonians. But do you know what I find even more interesting than that? If you go back to that article in just a moment, you see that the rippling effects of what happens when you're oppressed, when you're victimized, when humiliated, trickles down even to the deepest, innermost psyche of a person to where it creates a certain mindset. A certain mindset. And when you look at some of the examples that the author gave as perpetrators of oppression, right? Such as a wicked employee, an abusive spouse, a cruel mother-in-law, a bad employer. Now you come to understand that the issue here is a mindset that everyone struggles with, even if you're not Korean, even if you don't know what Han is. This is a mindset that pervades everyone. Because all of us have been victimized in these kind of categories in one form or another. What mindset am I talking about? I'm talking about the poverty mindset. The poverty mindset. Now, what in the world is the poverty mindset? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not where you behave, excuse me, it's not where you live like a poor person. It's where you think like a poor person. And do you know how poor people living in poverty think? Consider this quote from a genuine poor person living in poverty in Moldova. This is something that the World um, Agency uh, did a survey on. And these are actual quotes from people who are living in poverty. Excuse me. She said this, For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. End quote. You know, most of the poor that are living today are because... Some for some people, some agency are oppressing them. And as a result, they see themselves as what? Garbage. Good for nothing except to be thrown out. And what's so sad is that people with this mindset eventually start to believe that they deserve this oppression, thereby defending sometimes even their oppressor. Whether it's the abusive wife defending the husband that's beating her, whether it's uh, I don't know whether it's the, uh, uh, the loyal son dismissing the grievances of a wife who's being abused by the in-laws, whether it's the, the timid church member who's excusing the obviously immoral church leader. You could be the richest person in this room and still have a poverty mindset, a mindset where there is such a sense of unimportance, unworthiness, unlovableness. That's the poverty mindset. And that was the mindset that God's people were feeling at this time, evidenced by what it says in verse 2. What does it say? But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Pause. Let me clarify something right there. When Micah is referring to Bethlehem as little, he's not referring to the geographical size of the city of Bethlehem. Rather, he's talking about the collective mindset that God's people were feeling at the hands, at the result of corrupt government leaders. They felt little. They felt insignificant to the point where they say, I feel so unworthy. I feel so unimportant. I feel so lost. I feel so unlovable that I feel like I'm a person of Bethlehem. Consider these words from theologian Tom Constable as he describes the mindset of Bethlehem back then. Bethlehem was the least honorable, little, among the towns in Judah, the most insignificant place. This is what happens when you have agents such as corrupt leaders, callous bosses, cruel in-laws, cold spouses oppressing you. You feel like a citizen of Bethlehem, not a citizen 
of a country that's the best in the world, not a citizen of the city in the best country, but you feel like someone comes from nowhere because you are a nobody. Because that's so, a need is created. The consequences of when you are humiliated, oppressed, and victimized creates a vacuum, a need for another external agent who can undo it. In other words, there is the creation of a healing king. The need for a healing king. Someone who is the complete polar opposite of what corrupt government officials represent or those who are like them. But therein lies the question, who exactly is this healing king? What defines this person? What are their characteristics? And this leads me to my next point, the characteristics of a healing king. Pick it back up with me. Second half of verse 2. We read, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Pause right there. Did you catch it? Did you see it? Micah, as he's prophesying about this future king who will bring healing, paradoxically, is also described as what? Someone who was from of old, or another translation puts it, someone from the distant past. How in the world is that possible? How is a person able to come from the future to where he's foretold, and yet also have his origin from the past? Does that make sense? Well, Micah gives us a huge clue when you look at that phrase at the end of verse 2. What does he call him? What does he describe him as? Of ancient days. In the literal Hebrew, it means from everlasting days. Ah, now we get it. Micah is not describing any normal human being. He's describing someone who's from the past, who's from the future, because this person is timeless. This person is not bound within the realm of space and time. This person is in the realm of eternity. He's eternal. And scripture tells us the only person who fits that profile is God. God. Indeed. If you ever read the book of Daniel, you'll find that good old Danny boy uses that phrase ancient days to describe God himself. Look and listen to what it says in Daniel 7, starting in verse 9. As I, Daniel, looked, thrones were set in place, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand ten times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. The future king, according to Micah, vis-a-vis Daniel, is none other than God himself. Do you realize what that means? That means that the only person who can heal you from the oppression, from the victimization, from the, the oppression that you have endured, the only person who can undermine that sense of feeling unimportant, unworthy, unlovable, is God and God alone. In fact, Micah makes an effort to point this out by saying what he does in verse 3. What does he say? Therefore he, God, shall give them up until a time. God shall give up on them for a season. Now you hear that and you're like, well, that's not a very flattering description of God because it almost sounds as if God is abandoning his own people. How can that ever be a good thing? That just sounds vicious. That sounds cruel. But that's not what Micah's point is. Micah is simply making the point that God is the only one who can be the healer of all the wounds that we sustain when we are oppressed, when we are victimized, when we're humiliated. 
Okay, that's the point he's trying to say. We are not capable of freeing ourselves from the trauma that comes with having a poverty mindset. A couple weeks ago, I came across a book called Rid of My Disgrace. And it's basically a book about sexual abuse and how the church should respond to people within their community and the people that their community encounters who have suffered such tragedy. And at one point in the book, it says this. Quote, given that sexual assault inflicts powerlessness, betrayal, confusion, and rejection, it is not surprising that victims often experience a distorted self-image. This can fuel self-blame, self-hate, and self-harm. Distorted self-image can also lead to isolation from others who might help restore a sense of safety, grace, and love. It may even convince the victim to pursue relationships and interactions with others that lead to further chronic suffering, thereby perpetuating and intensifying the negative self-perception. In response to the negative self-image, excuse me, many victims suffer under, family members and friends may suggest various forms of self-esteem enhancements that usually focus on positive self-statements and other self-healing exercises. However, listen to what it says, these self-enhancements end up being only homemade rituals. The truth is, we are powerless to heal ourselves. Research shows that self-help actually results in self-harm. End quote. In what is arguably the most traumatic and oppressive and humiliating thing a person can go through that serves as a baseline paradigm for all kinds of trauma, the point is clear. We cannot heal ourselves. Whether it be bullying, domestic disturbance, sexual abuse, or being conquered by a wicked nation, the poverty mindset that results from those kinds of experiences cannot be undone by you or me or by anyone on this earth. It doesn't matter how many books you read. It doesn't matter how many pills you pop in. It doesn't matter how many vacations you go on. It doesn't matter how many seminars you attend. No human wisdom, no human skill, no human wherewithal will be able to heal and undermine the poverty mindset that happens when you are oppressed, when you are victimized, when you are humiliated. No, we need someone who Micah says is beyond human resources. We need God. He alone is the healing king because he is the ancient of days. And this is why Micah says that God had to give up for a time on his people. You know why? Because it's only when you are deprived of something that you realize how irreplaceable it is. God, in order to convince his stubborn people to finally admit and to truly accept that they are powerless, had for a season to withhold something that they were denying that they needed so that they can finally accept that that is the only thing they need and that he is the only one who can fulfill that need. You see, Micah is telling us nothing can replace the power of God's healing. And Christian, I wonder, do you really believe that? Do you really get that? Because I know all of us in here have something in our lives where someone has done us wrong, where you have been humiliated, where you have been oppressed, where you have been victimized. Whether it be a parent, a professor, a partner of some sort, a pastor, even a president. And no amount of Reading, journaling, counseling, vacationing, working can undermine any of that. Could it be, Christian, that the reason why you've been so stuck in this mindset of impoverishment is because you don't understand the true meaning of Christmas? Wait, what? 
<laughs> what a curveball. What does Christmas have anything to do with this heavy topic you're bringing up? Well, let me try and answer by <clears throat> going to the final point. Access to the healing. Sorry. If you take another look at what it says in verse 2 and 3, you notice that Micah makes an interesting reference about a woman who gives birth. And it's the moment that this woman gives birth is where God with ends his withholding of his healing presence to his people and now unleashes it through the birth of this particular child. But the question is, who is this woman? Who is this lady that is giving birth to this particular child? Of course, we know. We fast forward a couple pages through scripture that represents fast forwarding to a couple hundred years in history. And we set back down to Matthew chapter two. We're starting in verse three. We read, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for the ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of for my people Israel. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Micah, as we come to find, is prophesying about Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. And it was the birth of this child that marked Christmas that Micah was referring to. And when you realize this, you come to discover that one of the central reasons, one of the primary reasons why God came into the world as Jesus Christ is so that he could be our healer. He could be the healing king. And as a result of his governing rule, he would completely undo the poverty mindset that so many of us are still struggling with now by doing the complete opposite. You know what Jesus came to do? He came to change your mind by giving you a blessed mindset. A blessed mindset. What is a blessed mindset? It's the complete opposite of a poverty mindset. Right? If poverty mindset says, I'm unimportant, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, the blessed mindset says is that when Jesus is your king, not your own, when you're not your own king, but when you make Jesus your king, you are significant. You are worthy. You are lovable. When Christ is your king and you submit yourself to him, the result of that rulership over your life results in a blessed mindset. I mean, we see the results of that very mindset in Micah's passage because he talks about what happens to those who come under this rule. Starting in verse 4, we, we read, And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he, the king, shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him she seven shepherds and eight princes of men. What's Micah describing? He is describing people who no longer see themselves as victims who deserve to be victimized. He is describing people who no longer see themselves as oppressed or worthy of being oppressed or deserving of being oppressed. Okay? They see people, these are people who see themselves differently to where they're willing to resist, they're willing to refute their adversaries, to where they're willing to be bold, brave, and believing. Believing? Believing what? Believing that God truly sees you as significant, as worthy, and lovable, in spite of what people who oppress you say, in spite of what you say because of your oppression, your being oppressed. Okay? 
But the question is, how do you access this mindset? How does it actually become a part of you? Consider these words from theologian James Boyce. He writes, it cannot be said of any other person that he or she came into the world to do something. It is often true that there are purpose that there are purposes parents have for their children. They hope that the child lying in a crib will grow up to do something significant in the world. Parents have those aspirations, but the child does not have them. The child has to acquire them. But Jesus was different. Our Lord says that he came for a specific purpose. I don't know why it is, but we often lose a sense of that purpose in telling the Christmas story. We focus so much on the birth of a baby and on the sentiment that goes with that story that we miss the important things. Actually, the story is treated quite simply in Scripture, and the emphasis is always on the fact that Jesus came to suffer and die. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took a human body in order that he might die for our salvation, end quote. What's he saying? The ultimate reason why God came into the form as a human babe, as Jesus Christ, on Christmas Day, is so that he could save us from our sins. By dying on the cross as our substitute Savior, he paid the full ransom, he paid the full payment of all the sins that you should be punished for, but won't if you put your faith in Jesus as your king, if you allow him to rule over your life so that you would be forgiven, so that you would be given eternal life. But again, you ask, what does any of that have to do with the poverty mindset that I've been speaking of all throughout the message? It works this way. One of the things that happens when you are oppressed, when you are humiliated, when you are victimized, is to ask why. And one of the derived questions that come from why is this. Did I do something to deserve this? Is this something that happened to me because, you know, I I deserve what I went through, that that I'm somehow responsible for this? And once that person is confronted with the truth, that in spite of their victimization, they're also victimizers, where they see their own sins, they see their own wickedness, they see their own selfishness now, irrationality is created where they assume, oh, it's because I'm like this that I was humiliated. It was because of this that I was oppressed. It was because I'm so messed up. And ironically, that's what victimizers constantly point to. You see, it's because you're like this that I treat you this way. And this cycle of oppression keeps on. Jesus came to break that cycle because he said, I came to show you that that is illogical, that is irrational, and it's not true. I came so that whatever false justification you think that you deserve this victimization, I could completely refute by dying on the cross for your sins. So there is no self-blame. There is no self-hatred. There is no self-harm. Listen, this is the most important part I want you to remember. Jesus came into this world so that you would believe what his oppression, his victimization, his humiliation says about you, rather than what your victimization, your humiliation, your oppression says about you. That's a tongue twister. Remember it, though. Jesus came into the world so that you would believe what his victimization, his oppression, his humiliation says about you, not what your victimization, your humiliation, your oppression says about you. Do you get that? If you do, now you have access. Now you have the means of finally understanding of how you access this healing king to where you can be changed and transformed through the renewing of your mind, that Paul says in Romans 12, to where no longer do you see yourself as a victim who should be victimized, but someone who is victorious through the one who was victimized for you. 
That is the essence of what the gospel is teaching that the Christmas story highlights for us. And I ask, do you understand that? Will you believe that moving forward? I want to end this message with a couple next steps. First, if you're here today investigating Christianity and today's message stirred you to the point where you're ready to move forward and bow the knee of your heart to King Jesus because you need to be set free from the poverty mindset, take this time now and ask Jesus to be the king of your life. And you do that by first acknowledging your need for him and his love for you to where he was willing to die on the cross as your substitute savior. And then afterwards, come talk to me or Pastor James. We want to help you begin this joyful, wonderful new journey of freedom and enrichment. Number two, write out the wrongs people have done to you in your past and still affect you now negatively. Try and figure out how these forms of humiliation and victimization and oppression have affected how you see yourself. Here's a couple examples. Do you see yourself as an imposter, the imposter syndrome? Do you have low self-esteem? Do you have perpetual victim mentality, self-hatred, self-harming, excessive behavior as a coping response, workaholism, materialism, substance abuse, whatever? And as you write this down, then go to God. And go to God through Romans chapter 8. And read what it says in 31 to 33. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Right standing, right standing, right standing. You can stand before God because you are significant, because you are worthy, because you are lovable through your King Jesus. Get that truth in your head that what Jesus was oppressed by, what he was victimized for, and what he was humiliated of was so that you would know that is true of you and not what your humiliation, your oppression, your victimization says about you. And pray for the Holy Spirit, for healing. Pray for the King to come. Pray for restoration. And ask a fellow member of this church, your Oikos group member, me, a loved one, to continuously pray for you as you wrestle to access through power from above through your king. Because it's there and it's waiting for you. Can you not just stop sitting on the sidelines now and go into this new year and enjoy some blessed enrichment to your mind so that you can be set free for good? Let's pray. Father, I ask that so many of us who have been hurt, who have been oppressed, who have been humiliated, in the mighty name of our King Jesus would be set free from this day forward. Father, I know so many of my brothers and sisters, and I stand as one as well, who have been impoverished in our thinking. And we need you, God. We need you desperately to help us so that we can be set free. Lord, the great fear that we see in our country today is merely a symptom of the consequences that come when we don't have the healing king in our lives. Oh, Jesus, would you come now and be our healing king? And Lord, help us to know that you already come and that what this avid season reminds us of, that we no longer have to wait for power to come upon us. It is available here and now if we would just seek it out. Father, I pray that healing would begin if it hasn't already for those in this room those across the hall those who are not able to be with us on this day and that we would move forward as a church family 
people who might have scars, but also have hope, who may have uh, a past, but also have a glorious future, who may have been cursed, but are now set free. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.